starting in verse 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me, and of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Let's pray once more. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this time to uh, just look at, at history and look how you have acted in history. And um, I just ask you to, to bless our time, draw us close to you, and uh, help us to uh, just focus on truth. We love you, Lord, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I'm looking at Irenaeus. Um, Irenaeus is, this lesson is one that I've been thinking about ever since I began the church history series some seven, eight months ago. Um, he's one of my favorite of all the early church fathers. Um, very interesting, prolific writer. And uh, so we're going to be examining him and examine a little bit of, of implications from him on Bible translation. Um, Irenaeus of Lyons is, is who he's called. He was actually born in Asia Minor. Um, he was a disciple of Polycarp. So you're familiar with Polycarp, who was also a disciple of the Apostle John. Um, so he has a close connection to John. He, um, during his, uh, his time, there was a lot of missionaries sent from Smyrna and Asia Minor to Lyons. Lyons is uh, southern France, now known as Gaul. Familiar with Charles de Gaulle, Charles de Gaulle Airport in, in, in Paris. Gaul is that area in southern France, but it was called Lyons back then. He was born um, into a Christian family. So he was Greek, but he was born into a Christian family. And he, um, he grew much under Polycarp. When he moved to Lyons, he was, a, uh, he was preaching there. Um, the head bishop of the church of Lyons at the time was Pothinus. Pothinus, I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it. But um, there arose a, a, a great persecution in that area against Christianity. Irenaeus happened to have left and gone to Rome at the time, but the, the bishop there, uh, Pothinus, was murdered. And, um, but things settled down, and Irenaeus came back, and he then was elected the bishop of Lyons. Um, Irenaeus, he stands out as really the most important of all the, the, the second century church followers. So he's born in, a, in 130, um, and he wrote, he wrote ex extensively against the Gnostics. And we've talked a lot about the Gnostics. He, um, uh, his writing, when I first read, actually read in this little book, it's called Daily Readings, the Early Church Fathers. There's a lot of these old daily readings books. Maybe you've seen different ones. Um, it's put together by the same guy that wrote 2,000 Years of Christ's Power, Nick Needham. Um, but it's a neat little way to get familiar with, with the writings of early church fathers. He covers, let's see, every month he focuses on a different church father. He's got John Chrysostom, Irenaeus is February, Gregory the Theologian, Cyprian, Basil, Jerome, Gregory of Nyssa, Augustine, Cyril, 
of Jerusalem, Ambrose, uh, Cyril of Alexandria, and Athanasius the Great. And so each month it looks at one of these. I remember reading Irenaeus for the first time, and I was like, wow, this guy, he just, something about his writing, he was a great apologist. He is adamantly defending the deity of Christ. Um, and it just seems so relevant. You know, I'm reading a guy 19, 19, 1800 years ago or so, and it just, you know, it, it, it really blows me away when I think about this simple fact. The same Holy Spirit that has indwelt each of us as believers was indwelling these same guys, you know? And that, it's so neat to look at, think about that, that God living within us, same guys back in the early church, you know, and are being led by the Spirit. And you read his writing and you're like, man, this so applies even to today as a defender of the faith. He defends the scripture. He defends the deity of Christ, two of his major areas. He wrote two, or uh, he, may, he wrote more than that, but the two major works, the first one is Against Heresies. It's a very large volume. It's also known as A Refutation and Overthrow of Knowledge, Falsely So-Called. <laughs> it's kind of an interesting title there. Um, and then he wrote a smaller work called Proof of the Apostolic Preaching. Uh, his, his strong uh, condemnation of the Gnostics, it actually may have been personal. It turns out a childhood friend of his who was also discipled by Polycarp, a guy named Florinus, uh, they grew up together. They both studied under Polycarp. Um, Florinus renounced Orthodox Christianity, and he became a follower of Valentinus, who was one of the major Gnostic teachers. And um, so Irenaeus, he writes this long, just heartfelt letter to Florinus, pleading with him, come back to the, to the word of God and to the true faith. Um, and when you examine his, this writing against heresies, he's very much focused on Valentinus. Um, I think just he was hurt by this and really... Uh, wanted to demonstrate that Valentinus was a false teacher. And so much of what he writes in Against Heresies is directed at Valentinus. Um, so I wanted to examine a few of his writings. Um, when you look at um, Against Heresies, he, he focuses on several areas and just read a little bit. Um, there are five kind of directions he goes. He says he, he sets forth in detail the doctrines of the different Gnostic sects. He felt that simply to describe them would show how ridiculous and unreasonable and uh, unreasonable and unworthy of belief they were. Uh, the Gnostics were not a monolithic group. There were a lot of different Gnostic groups. They all didn't believe quite the same thing. And he does this amazing job categorizing them all and demonstrating the different ones. And like I said, just reading what they say, sometimes you actually read people's words and you're like, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. And that's kind of what he does. He just demonstrates by their own words that they were just wrong. So he argues against the Gnostics' claim that they had a special secret knowledge passed on from Jesus and the apostles. Or if you remember, that's, that's what gnosis, Gnostic, means knowledge. So they thought they had the secret knowledge. But um, he points out that none of the Gnostic sects agreed with each other about what exactly this secret knowledge was. On top of this, Irenaeus argued that there were many churches which the apostles had actually founded or where the apostles had ministered, yet none of these apostolic fathers 
knew anything about this so-called secret knowledge. He's like, look, this church was founded by, you know, Paul or, or any of the apostles. They don't know anything about this secret knowledge. So he's pointing out that y'all are just making this stuff up. He demonstrated by careful argument from the Bible that, God, that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same God and that the creator of the universe is not some inferior demiurge. If you remember, that was one of the terms that there was this lower God that created all the physical world. Um, so not some inferior demiurge, but the heavenly father of Jesus Christ. Irenaeus also argued that salvation did not come through any secret knowledge, but through the life and death of Christ. Irenaeus interpreted Christ as a second Adam, who by his perfect obedience had reversed and canceled the disobedience of the first Adam. So, of course, we see that in the book of Romans. Um, he defended the goodness of creation. It was not the evil product of a demiurge, but the noble workmanship of the heavenly father. He also affirmed against the Gnostic docetism that Christ really took on flesh, became a real man, really died, and really rose again. So remember, some of the Gnostics said, well, Jesus was just a spiritual being. He just appeared to be physical. Um, one of the interesting things, you've heard of the Apostles' Creed. Irenaeus was actually the first to write a version of the Apostles' Creed that was later um, adapted. I'll just read the Apostles' Creed. It says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, from where he will come again to urge, to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the dead, and the life everlasting. Of course, when he says Holy Catholic Church, he's just meaning the universal church, not the Roman Catholic Church. Um. Let's see. So that's kind of some, a summary of a lot of his teaching. I want to read a few things directly from him. Um, so one of, one of the quotes that I actually gave this one to Ruth when she wrote her book on homeschooling because I thought this was so good. He says, It is better and brings greater benefit to be a simple, uneducated man or woman and to become akin to God through love than to be well-read and clever in our own conceited opinion and to blaspheme the God who made us by making up some imaginary God and father of our own. That's pretty good, you know. And that's what, you know, that's why we homeschool our kids, right? Because we won't, we're not preparing them for Harvard. We're preparing them for heaven, right? We want them to know God. And, you know, who cares if they become some great, you know, PhD or whatever if they don't know God, they don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior, then, you know, all their education is for nothing. So I thought that was a pretty interesting quote by Irenaeus. Um, let's see. Uh, this is an interesting section here. He says, Heretics boast of their belief system as perfect in knowledge, but it is found neither in the prophets, nor the Lord himself, nor the apostles, they patch together their views from sources other than the scriptures. As a proverb says, they endeavor to weave ropes of sand. They also try to adjust the Lord's parables, the, the prophets, 
sayings and the apostles' words to their own odd teachings, doing this with an air of plausibility so that their system might seem to enjoy some basis. In the process, they ignore the harmony and interconnections, interconnectedness of Scripture, thus tearing the truth limb from limb and destroying it. And he goes on to say, they, by ripping text out of context, dressing them up in new meanings and changing one thing into another, they deceive many by this evil skill of adjusting the Lord's oracles to their own opinions. They, they behave as though an expert artist had put costly jewels together into a beautiful image of a king. And then someone else had taken the picture to pieces, rearranged the jewels, and produced a shoddy image of a dog or fox. And then claimed this was the king's beautiful image made by the expert artist. The deceiver points to the jewels which the original artist had so wonderfully arranged into the king's image, but which the deceiver has now reshaped into the image of a dog. By pointing to the jewels, he deludes the ignorant who have no idea what a king looks like, convincing them that this pathetic picture of a fox is the image of the beautiful king. Likewise, these heretics stitch together myths and fables, and then by violently twisting Scripture's words, phrases, and parables, they try to adjust the oracles of God to their own fabricated fictions. It's a pretty neat analogy there, how you know, her heretics can twist Scripture, but there will still be elements of truth in it, right? But then it, they twist it. Um, let's see. Read another section here. What's that? It absolutely. It comes as an angel of light, right? That's what Satan does. The Scripture says of God the Father, God formed man, taking soil from the earth, and breathed into man's face the breath of life. Quoting Genesis there. It wasn't angels, therefore, who made or shaped us. They had no power to create an image of God, nor did, they, nor did anything else distant from the universal Father. Only the word of the Lord had this power. God didn't need angels to carry out what he had chosen beforehand within himself, as if he didn't have his own hands. Present with, present with him from everlasting were his word and wisdom, the Son and Spirit, by whom and in whom freely and of his own choice he created all things. It was the Son and the Spirit to whom the Father spoke, let us make man after our, our image and likeness. So, I mean, that's pretty powerful uh, declaration of the Trinity there, quoting Genesis 1. Um, he says, just as the word of God had lordship in the heavens, so he has lordship on the earth. Having become a righteous man who did no sin, neither was Gal found in him, quoting Isaiah, he also has the highest place over things under the earth as the first begotten from the dead, Colossians 1. Therefore, in Christ, all things behold their king. The Father's light has shone forth and rested upon our Lord's flesh, and from his shining flesh it now flows to us. In this way, humanity reaches immortality, having been closed with the Father's light. I have shown that the word that is the Son was always with the Father. I also say that wisdom, which is the Spirit, was present with him before anything was made. And as Spirit tells us, as the Spirit tells us through Solomon, by wisdom God founded the earth, and by understanding he established the heavens, or Proverbs, there is therefore one God 
who by his word and his wisdom made and organized all things. Anyway, just a, a powerful declaration of the, uh, of the Trinity there. And again, this is 100 and maybe 200 years almost before uh, the Council of Nicaea, where a lot of people say, well, Nicaea is where they first came up with the doctrine of the Trinity. No, I mean, Irenaeus is writing very clearly about it way back then. One more section I wanted to look at here. Um, he says, those who say Jesus was a mere man begotten by Joseph, abiding in the slavery of the age-old disobedience, are themselves dwelling in death. They haven't, been, they haven't yet been made one with the word of God, the, the Father, nor found freedom through the Son. And he himself cries out, if the Son shall make you free, you shall, truly, you shall be truly free, for John 8. They, however, are ignorant of him who is God with us from the virgin. And so they are stripped of his gift, life everlasting. Because they haven't welcomed the word who cannot die, they are still in mortal flesh, owing the debt of death and not finding the antidote of life. Christ, in his own right, beyond all mortal humans who ever lived, is himself God, Lord, everlasting King, the incarnate word, shown forth by all the prophets, the apostles, and by the Spirit himself, anyone who has got hold of even the smallest bit of the truth can see this. So again, powerful declarations of the deity of Christ. Let's see. I want to look at another verse here that is or another passage. Um, and against heresies, um, at chapter 20, so one interesting thing, he, he quotes all but four books of the New Testament. So he was very familiar with the New Testament and the Old Testament. He, he understood the New Testament, probably had all of the Old Testament, but he quotes all but Hebrews, James, Second Peter, and Jude um, in his writings. So very familiar. And of course, at this time, the whole canon of Scripture hadn't been compiled in one book yet. So it's pretty neat to see he has so much of the New Testament gathered together. But chapter 20, which this is, this is I like these long titles. This is the, chap the title of chapter 20, that one God formed all things in the world by means of the word and the Holy Spirit, and that although he is to us in this life invisible and incomprehensible, nevertheless, he is not unknown inasmuch as his works do declare him. And his word has shown that in many modes he may be seen and known. That's the whole title of chapter 20. <laughs> um, and what's interesting about this passage, the Gnostics did not believe Jesus to be God, right? And they use scripture that says that no man has seen God to justify this heresy that Jesus was not God because you could see him. So saying, the Bible says no man has seen God, so we can see God, so Jesus must not be God. That's their, their logic, right? Um, so, in this passage, Irenaeus is explaining how God has manifested himself in, in various ways. He, he talks about uh, you know, Moses and seeing that, you know, when he said, show me your glory. And he, he talks about these various times when they, in the Old Testament, they see the power of God. And, and he says, lest anyone might happen to think that in those visions, he had actually seen God. He added, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. He says, if then neither Moses nor Elias nor Ezekiel, who had 
all many celestial visions did see God, but if what they did see were similitudes of the splendor of the Lord, the prophecies of things to come, it is manifest that the Father is indeed invisible, of whom also the Lord said, no man hath seen God at any time, which is John 1. But his word, as he himself willed it, and for the benefit of those who beheld, did show the Father's brightness and explained his purposes, as also the Lord said, the only begotten God, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. And he does himself also interpret the word of the Father as being rich and great. So as I, as I read that, you see him quoting John 1.18. Does that give you any pause? Does that trouble you, what he's quoting? Now I ask that because if you recognize what he quotes in the underlined, you'll notice that he is quoting what the NS, NASB would put here and not what the King James would put here. The only begotten God, whereas the King James says the only begotten Son there. Um, I actually ran this by Pastor Hovey because I, I didn't want to, I know this is a little bit controversial um, and, and he was okay with me presenting this. This is a, a one-letter textual variant. A textual variant means, you know, we have 5,700 ancient manuscripts, right? There is no other ancient document in all of history that is attested to like the Bible. And if you remember the lesson I gave on the Bible, there's the, the New Testament has far more copies and they date back closer to the original writings than anything, any other work in antiquity. If you can't trust the Bible, you can't trust any document in all of history. Um, and so in this particular case, one of the products of the way that the proliferation of the manuscripts, this is how God chose to preserve his word, is this proliferation of manuscripts. One of the products is you do have textual variation. And so in this particular case, there's a one-letter textual variant. It's a, a theta versus an eta, which you get theos versus hueos. So hueos, uh, the phrase is monogenes hueos, which is only begotten son, or monogenes theos, which is only begotten God. It actually, monogenes, you recognize mono is, is one or only, and it could, it's in the same semantic domain. It could mean one and only God as our only begotten God. NASB, if you read NASB, it says only begotten God. If you read the ESV, English Standard, it says the one and only God, something like that. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's, it's, so in this particular variant, there's a lot of debate over and when, you, when, you, when I say there's a number of variants in Scripture, the vast majority of them make no difference whatsoever, right? Most of them are something like what's known as the movable new, or the Greek letter new. Um, in English, the equivalent would be something like a and an. So if I say a apple, I'm not, it's not correct English, right? But um, it doesn't change the meaning, right? A apple, an apple, either way. So the meaning isn't, isn't changed. In this particular case, it's more difficult to determine because it's quoted by a number, 
It's very, very early. So again, this is second century. Irenaeus closely tied to John. It's, there's a number of um, early church fathers that quote it this way, and there's a number that quote it the other way. So whenever it happened was very early. And again, it was one letter. Could have been just a mistake. Could have been whoever was copying it. The, the text was faded. So it's one of those that's really hard to tell which way it should have been. However, you have Irenaeus and you have several other that use it in defending the deity of Christ, which is interesting. Irenaeus actually, which just makes you scratch your head a little more, he quotes it both ways. <laughs> so you have to ask, what did... He quotes it both ways. In another place, he quotes it the other way. So you have to ask, did he have two different versions? You don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it, it's interesting. And it's, again, it's, um, if, if you're familiar with the NASB or ESV, the translators determined the theos to be what they think is original. Of course, the King James, New King James, used the word son. That's what uh, Erasmus had when he put together his, his uh, printed edition of the Greek New Testament. That's what they, along with Erasmus, Beza, and Stephanus that the King James translators had. So, but if you think about it, either way, only begotten son, is, that's, that language is used in John 3. So that is, there's no theological really implications that one would be wrong and if it's one and only God, I mean, obviously it's defending the deity of Christ there. Irenaeus is using it in defending the deity of Christ. So either, either way, you know, I guess we are to study to show ourselves approved. As scripture said, either way can be right. But so while I'm looking at this, I wanted to look at a few other things. I personally don't hold to a, a King James only view, right? Um, and a lot of it has to do with this subject of defending the deity of Christ. I wanted to look at a couple other verses that if I am talking to, well, before I said, so when you read uh, various people that write about this, there's a couple of different camps that strongly defend only begotten son as opposed to only begotten God or one and only God. And um, one of them is Unitarians. Unitarians, uh, says Unitarian Church, the Jehovah's Witness, the Mormons also, the Muslims, all defend only begotten Son because they recognize if he's saying one and only God, it is a very strong defense of the deity of Christ. Um, so Unitarians defend that way. The others are guys like Peter Ruckman, Gail Ripplinger, Sam Gipp. But what they say is, well, you're trying to say that Jesus was a created being here. But that's not what's being said. And obviously, Irenaeus wasn't doing that. He was using it to defend the deity of Christ. But Peter Ruckman, he makes up all kinds of stuff like that. And he'll, he'll say that the translators are trying to um, destroy the deity of Christ. But if you look at the whole, it's, that, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So I, I wanted to look at a few more verses where that apply to the deity of Christ. And if I'm using... If I am talking to a Muslim and defending the deity of Christ, I'm typically going to use something like an ESV. Because, let's just look at a few of these verses. Titus 2.13. Looking for that blessed hope 
and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's King James. ESV here. If anybody familiar with ESV? J.I. Packer was the head of ESV. He's the one that, um, if you ever read Knowing God, just outstanding work on uh, just knowing the character of God was J.I. Packer. He was kind of the head of the ESV. Um, anyway, I, I like reading ESV, and so I just picked it here. But in the ESV, it says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So you see the R is removed, and it much more clearly is saying Jesus is our great God and Savior. This is what's known in Greek as the Granville Sharp construction or Granville Sharp rule, which says, and I'm no, I barely speak English. You know, my native language was Southeast Texan, and so English is not my first language. <laughs> but the Granville Sharp rule says this, a grammatical dictum stating that when two or more personal Singular substantives are joined by chi, the Greek word chi, and governed by a single article, they refer to the same person. So here in the King James, you see it separated. They didn't, that rule hadn't been discovered in Greek at the time of the King James in 1611, um, but it later was discovered in just studying the Greek language. And so you apply both our great God and Savior to Jesus Christ. So very clearly stating that Jesus is God there. Another one here is uh, Romans 9, 5. King James says, Whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God bless forever. Amen. ESV says, To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. See, the, the comma is basically in a different place. So again, saying God, Jesus Christ is God overall. Right. Right. So you. So you could separate. Right. So it combines God and Savior, both apply, whereas in King James, and it's not saying the King James is not saying it, but it is not quite as clear in that our great God and our Savior. So they're separated, whereas in the SC, it's our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it's very clearly applying great God to a Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, and some of this with, with Muslims, you know, Muslims deny the deity of Christ, of course. It's very helpful to have that clarity. Um, one more, and this one again is Granville Sharp. It's Simon Peter in Second Peter 1, 1. Simon Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, that's the same thing as the Titus verse. And then you look at ESV, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, it's applying. So anyway, there's a, there's a number of passages like that. Um, and again, so if I'm defending the deity of Christ, I'll usually use an ESV or, a, or an NASV, depending. Um, 
So while I'm on the subject, I want to look at something else. This is a really fun one. Who killed Goliath? Are y'all familiar with this, uh, this difference in Bible translations? You know, you ever heard this one, that the modern translations take out the words the brother of, and uh, so makes a contradiction in the Bible? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at them both here. But it's a really, this is really, really interesting. So when you, when again, if you read Sam Gipp, actually Sam Gipp does a presentation on this, and what he will say about this is he said, those modern translators purposely took the words the brother out to create a contradiction so that we can't trust the Bible. That's what he says. Is that why the words the brother of are not there? And I want to look at this. It's really interesting. So 2 Samuel 21, 19, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up to that verse. So if you see, it says, And there was again a battle in Gob with the Philistines, where Elhanan, the son of Jer or Agim, a Bethlehemite, slew the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the staff of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And so here again, if you look at the ESV, it is problematic because it says, and there was again war with the Philistines at Gob, and Elhanan, the son of Jer or Agim, the Bethlehemite struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. So did Elhanan kill Goliath or Goliath's brother? Well, of course, we know the story of David and Goliath, so <laughs> obviously David killed Goliath. Why in the world do the words the brother of not exist there? Bingo. That's exactly why I wanted you to look it up. I was going to ask the question, when you look at the words in the Bible and you see the words the brother of, what is the difference in the font of the words the brother of? And uh, Glenn just pointed it out. Um, now, uh, and it won't italicize it. Yeah. Sometimes, especially reading online, the italics won't there. And I want, I want to talk about the italics in just a minute, but real quick to look at. So this story is also in, in uh, First Chronicles here. It says, and there was war again in the Philistine, with the Philistines, and Elhanan, the son of Jair, slew Lami, the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, whose spear was like that of a weaver's beam. And then here's ESV. In this particular verse, the words the brother over there, and there was again war with the Philistines. And Elhanan, the son of Jair, struck down Lamy, the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, whose shaft and spear was like weaver. So very, very close there. You see the word the brother of is there. So now you've got these two different passages in the ESV. One says the brother of, one doesn't. So why? Why is it like that? Well, I want to show you, this is an original 1611, and there's a really cool website you can go to and look up. It has photo taken photos of every page of an original 1611 King James. It's in that beautiful Gothic font, which is super hard to read because the, the lowercase s's look like lowercase f's and they spell things differently. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to read. Uh, some Amish friends of ours have the, uh, what is that? It's their songbook 
And it's all written in that language that we were trying to sing with them. I was like, I can't make up the words. Um, but anyway, so this is 2 Samuel, you see here. Uh, chapter 20, uh, 21 starts right here, and I'll, I'll blow up. Here is verse 19, 21, 19. If you read it, and there was again a battle in Gob with the Philistines, where Elhanan, the son, here you go, there's an F, which is an S, and it's spelled with two N's and an E, the son of Jair, Oregon, a Bethlehemite, slew, slew the brother of Goliath. Look at the words the brother of. Isn't that cool? It's almost in a Times New Roman font there. But you see the King James translators, even in the original, put the words like that. And there's an asterisk which says, see 1 Chronicles 25, the verse I read. So that's the question. Why in the King James do the words the brother of appear in a different font in either an, a modern King James or an old King James? And why do why does the NASB, ESV, NIV, any any translation put together in the 20th century, take the words out. Any thoughts? Again, Sam Gipp says, because they want to create a contradiction. <laughs> well, say something else that um, if you read Martin Luther's German translation, which he translated from Erasmus, um, well, and the, the Old Testament wasn't Erasmus, but he translated the Bible 90 years or so before the King James. Those words aren't there in his version. If uh, About 90 years. So he was 14, uh, or 1517 is when he nailed his 95 theses. Um, it was a few years after that. So maybe eight, well, 1611. So yeah, about 90 years before the King James was translated in 1611. The first, the first revision of the King James was 1611. Um, but Luther didn't include the words of brother of. If you read the Greek Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which the Apostle Paul used, um, the words of brother of aren't in there either. And the reason is they're not in the Hebrew. <laughs> That's a problem, isn't it? Well, if you have any study Bible, it doesn't matter what translation, if you have any study Bible, there'll be a footnote and it'll say, very likely the words are omitted by scribal error, but it was a very early scribal error because we don't possess an ancient manuscript of the Hebrew that has the words the brother of. Um, Dr. James White has, uh, I've mentioned him before, he has a really neat video. Uh, he's fluent in Greek and Hebrew, and he, uh, he'll put the, he puts up the Hebrew and he shows how easily the words could have been omitted, omitted by uh, what's called a homoiteuton. Homoi meaning similar or same. It's a Latin, um, which just means similar endings. Many, many of the textual variants you see in ancient manuscripts have to do with a homoiteuton. And what it is, say for instance, you're copying something. You're copying, you've got your original here, you're writing. And you see there are two words, say, like junction and function. They both have a similar, the T-I-O-N ending, right? You look up, you see function, you write it down. You look back up, and your eyes automatically find the T-I-O-N, and you start at junction instead of function, and you start writing. 
that's how the majority of things will get omitted is that. And sometimes instead of omitted, duplicated, because you go back to the previous word. The vast majority of textual variation is, well, I'll say the majority is that, but that's one of the major reasons that you have textual variation is scribes are copying things by candlelight, and sometimes they didn't even read Greek you know, or Hebrew, they're just copying, and that'll be one of the things. But it's actually not hard to figure out what was original as because the context will lend itself, and also because if you've got a room, say, say our whole church, or even us, there's only, what, seven or eight of us in here, if, say, we're given John chapter one, I want everybody to copy it down, we're all going to copy it down, and... When it gets to the end, all right, give me all your papers. I look at it and I start reading. Every one of us is going to make a mistake somewhere. Guarantee. Every one of us is going to make at least one mistake. But guess what? I'm probably not going to make the same mistake as Mr. Bogner. And he's probably not going to make the same mistake as, as Glenn or Terry. And so when you compare them all, you can actually figure out what the original was because we're not going to all make the exact same mistakes. And so when you look at, I mean, we have so many, you compare them, you can figure out pretty, pretty easily what was the original? There's only a few places that are really hard, and that John 1.18 is actually one of the hard ones because it's so early, and it's quoted by both, both ways. By early church fathers quoted both ways. So it's kind of hard. Well, now, I will say the majority text reading is the, the Son. That's the majority text. But um, it doesn't mean, majority text doesn't always mean that it was original. Um, Anyway, now I want to look at, I've got a little bit of time left. Another area that, again, if I am looking at to debate somebody or, or actually just teach truth is in the Christian moral ethic. And if you, there's a documentary coming out. So this, this book right here, The King James Controversy by James White, is absolute. This is the only book I think I've ever read, the entire book cover to cover and every single footnote. It's actually, it's fascinating. James White was in, uh, in Houston a few weeks ago, and he did a debate on, uh, with, on, the subject was, what is marriage? And he was debating a so-called progressive Christian who completely destroyed marriage. And this guy, his name was Keith Giles, what his argument, he says, I used to read the Bible like you, but then I discovered a new way to read the Bible. And he completely, it was very quickly listened to that guy that he did not even believe the Bible. And so he's allowing all sorts of immorality. Dr. James White made a powerful, he says, you know, there's an empty tomb in Jerusalem and the one who rose from the grave has authority to define what a man and a woman is and what marriage is. And he, he just gave an incredibly powerful testimony. But one thing that came up is there's a documentary coming out. It may already be out, but it's called the 1946 Project. The 1946 Project is put out by a bunch of progressive Christians who say, well, here's what they claim. The Bible does not condemn homosexuality. And they'll say the word homosexual didn't appear in the Bible until 1946. Well, that's true. The King James obviously doesn't use that word. It wasn't even a word when the King James translators. But if you look at this verse in 1 Timothy, um, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Well, this and I use NIV here just 
Uh, anyway, we'll, we'll talk about it. But it says, for the sexually immoral, those practicing homosexuality, slave traders. Anyway, NIV here, NASV, ESV, all use the word homosexual, condemning it very strongly. But this documentary is saying they, that word homosexuality didn't exist, and they added it because they were a bunch of bigots. And so I'm just presenting this so that we, if, you, if this comes up, if you're ever dealing with somebody that presents that argument that the Bible does not condemn it, they're just wrong. And this is a lie. It's a lie that the Bible doesn't condemn it. What is so interesting, there's another place, and that's, uh, that's 1 Corinthians. First, yeah, 1 Corinthians. Um, says it's the same kind of thing. What is um, interesting here, Paul, in this passage, he is actually quoting the Greek Septuagint. He's quoting the Greek Septuagint's translation of Leviticus 18 and 20 that says, a man shall not lie with a man. Now, he uses two words there, malakoi and arsenikoitas. Malakoi is what is translated uh, by the King James as effeminate. And then it's in this verse, nor abusers of themselves. So, uh, anybody know what LSB is? LSB is the Legacy Standard Bible. This is put out by John MacArthur. If you ever listen to John MacArthur, he's an NASB guy. Um, the LSB, what he in 2020, the Lockman Foundation revised the NASB. MacArthur loves the 1995 NASB, but he liked, he wanted to do a couple different things. The word Yahweh is just Yahweh. So if in in your Bible. How do we indicate Yahweh in, in the Old Testament? It's capital L-O-R-D, all capital letters. He changed all that in saying the Lord. It's just Yahweh. Ruth gave me one for Christmas, and I've been reading it. It's so neat to actually see the word Yahweh. Actually, I was reading Joshua and Nathaniel, and it says Yahweh the Lord. And Nathaniel goes, I thought the Lord was supposed to be Yahweh. And it made me realize, oh, yeah, well, there's two different words. There's Yahweh, and then there's the Lord. But it's, it's anyway, it's really interesting to read it. The other change that he made is the word doulos or doulo, which is the word slave. If you've read MacArthur's book, Slave, that we are to be slaves for Christ. But before Christ, we're slaves to sin. When we become Christians, we're slaves to Christ. So he consistently translated that word as slave. That's the only difference between LSB and a 1995 NASB. Anyway, back to this. Um, the, so the Greek words malakoi, arsenikoitos, mean two men, committing immoral acts. And so most translations will say just that, that homosexuality. All right. I'll end it right there because we're done. So I'm sure if y'all have questions you can, or uh, criticisms or want to throw me out of church, go ahead. But anyway, I hope it was informative. I do want to be as honest and truthful about these different things as possible. And so I hope it's helpful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you um, for how you have preserved it. I thank you, Lord, that we can trust your word for all things that pertain to life and godliness. I ask you to bless this day in Jesus' name. Amen.